Hey there, friends. Welcome to the Being Brown and Bold podcast. I am your host, Jess Thomas, and I'm so glad you're joining me today. If you've heard me before, you know that I live in the South in the United States, and it's always so fun to connect with other people from different cultural backgrounds who are also having some connection to the South. Well, that's what happened with my next guest. Eliza Keaton is an education professional who has worked across the U.S., the UAE, South Korea, and Vietnam since 2009. She's fond of languages and culture, particularly after her father married her Serbian stepmother and then was introduced to the melting pot of Chicago on family holidays. After meeting her Malayali husband in 2017, she began studying Malayalam and used her language training to make study materials to fill in the gap of accessible resources to learn this language spoken by brown people. She currently works as a teacher, trainer, and educational consultant in Hanoi, Vietnam. In her free time, she advocates for mother tongue education and equality in the realm of English language training. I know her as Ellie Kuti, and that's how I met her online originally. And now it's been so fun to connect in so many ways. So here's Ellie Kuti. Thanks for inviting me, Jess. It's good to see you. I think the last time we spoke, we were cooking together, which was super fun because <laughs> yes. you're from the South. And if you're listening from a different part of the world, the South is what we call the Southern states of the United States. So I currently live in Tennessee. And Eliza, you had lived in the South too. So it's fun to like now across the I think you were in a different country last time we spoke too. Maybe you were in Dubai. I think when we first started talking, we were in Dubai, yeah, and then we we cooked together what, after I had moved to Vietnam, and we were bonding over biscuits and gravy, which I think is like a quintessential Southern food, so like, I was like, she's, she she knows what's up. <laughs> she, truly, I only learned yeah. how to, actually, I didn't even really eat it until I moved to the South, so most mm. of my life, I never even ate it, so I was like, if I am really going to learn how to assimilate into the culture, I need to learn how to make biscuits and gravy from scratch. <laughs> so at BBB, as we like to say, we think names and pronunciation of our names are important. So tell us about your name, the moniker Elikuti, and how you got it. So, you know, I was born with the name Elizabeth and my friends call me Eliza. And when I was living in the UAE, I had a close friend of mine who is Thummer. And uh, one day uh, I was joking that someone at my Bangra class called me Ellie. And she goes, oh, well, in Tamar, Ellie means rat. And I was like, oh, that's a terrible name. And she goes, no, no, if you put Kutti next to it, it sounds cute. So Kutti is like small or baby in Tamar and also Malayalam. And so that was kind of a joke, Ellie Kutti, Ellie Kutti. And then when I started making my Malayalam learning materials, I wanted to create a separate Instagram account for my own personal account. So I was like, What's, what handle should I have? And then I was like, oh, here we go, Elikuti. And it's really funny because in Kerala, the name Elikuti is common. You know, it's kind of right there with Elizabeth. Um, but so a lot of people think I'm pronouncing my name wrong. And they're like, no, 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 you should say Elikuti. I'm like, no, it's 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 a little joke, Elikuti. And my logo on some of my documents, you'll see a little mouse with the letter E in Malayalam. So it's it's a running joke for the last four years. <laughs> I feel yeah, I think there's the common name is Eliama, 
And so Elikoti for Eliyama or El, yeah, see, it's the enunciation, which I don't got right. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. So yes, tell us a little bit about yourself. What does it mean to be you? So to be me, oh my goodness. Um, well, as you said before, I work in Vietnam and I work in the field of education, but myself, I'm just a very curious person that's really open to new things and new experiences. Uh, I grew up quite middle class and I didn't have the opportunity to do things like study abroad or extended school trips and all. So um, when I was able to see more of the states through road trips with families and things like that, I just really wanted to see more of everything around me. And being a child of the 2000s, you know, in high school, we had MySpace, we had the internet, and I just started having connections to other interests and languages. And so whether it was studying Spanish at school or Japanese from all the cartoons that I was watching, I just wanted to go and see things. And I, since the age of 20, have just been going around and, you know, I went to South Korea for my first teaching job, fell in love with the profession, uh, ended up going back to Korea a second time, then the UAE, and then I've just been kind of jumping from one thing to the next. And you know, having that open mind and having that resilience to just take whatever comes has really opened a lot of doors for me. And um, I've accidentally been away from the States for eight years now, and that was, you know, not intentional. So I'm actually quite homesick at this point um, because uh, COVID, you know, kind of complicated everything. So yes, so to be me is to be a very displaced American who hopes to come back home sometime soon. Um, but also really has enjoyed um, living abroad. I like sometimes I kind of feel like just kind of living my dream in that like you get to experience because I was the same when I was little I was like I want to see the world you know what it was I think I was three was the first time my parents took me to India um, and first time I got on a plane and I remember like looking out out the window and like my word like I want to do this all the time so actually my first dream when I was little is I want to be an airline attendant because back then the airline attendants were super glamorous. They were like models. And, and I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to serve tea in the air and look gorgeous and see <laughs> the world. So tell me a little bit about your cultural heritage and how that has informed your life and your work. Well, it's interesting because, um, my parents are just generic American. We did, haven't tra we haven't tracked a lot of our background. My mom, she's done extensive research on her side, so we've got roots in Scotland. Like you know, like a lot of Americans, she knows the colors of the tartan. She goes to these events where like she meets up with other clans and stuff. Um, but like I said before, I wasn't really, I wasn't really exposed to a lot of different cultures until my dad got remarried. And so when I was six years old. Uh, my dad met my stepmom, and as I said before, from former Yugoslavia, now Serbia. Um, so I would go to their house in Chicago, and it's just full of food and all these smells and like Serbian language being spoken very loudly. And you know, people would come in and out and visit my grandparents and bring me chocolates and all these other things. And I quickly learned about things like burek and chivape and all these different things and nursery rhymes from my grandmother. And, um, you know, it just be, it was like, oof. And then exploring the city was really interesting because I grew up in rural Georgia. Um, so I didn't have that experience of just 
going out on the street and walking to the supermarket and buying some things or buying something from a street vendor, you know. Um, and my uncle had married a second generation Japanese American woman. So her parents would like show me really cool stuff that they had saved from Japan and they um, entertained my interest in learning the Japanese language and things like that. Um, so that's kind of what sparked that interest. Like in my own backyard, I had that exposure to different cultures and then the internet, the internet just really opened things up. So you know, my my upbringing is quite, you know, what you would consider like middle class white family living in, you know, small town Georgia. But thankfully, because of the family ties and also the exposure to the Internet and being able to find things that I like and explore things that I like, that really sparked that interest. Um, now, growing up, my dad took me on a lot of road trips. And in that way, I got to see a lot of the states. Um, I think by the time I was 16, I had visited over 20 different states. And so being from the South, I get to see what people in California are like. I get to see what people in Pennsylvania are like. I get to see the different foods that they eat. Like what is Skyline Chili in Ohio? You know, these kinds of things. And so like, um, I think that just made me appreciate that there are different people that have different points of view, different ways of speaking inside my own country. And then also wanting to see for myself what it is like outside. Mm -hmm. um so yeah uh but the big step was when I turned 20 and I decided to follow my ex-husband out to Korea and <laughs> believe it or not my parents did not want me to go um in fact almost every time I've gone abroad it's been um <laughs> a lot of tension with my parents because they just don't have the exposure to the information um that we have now and you know, like when I told my dad I was moving to Vietnam in his head, it was like 1970s, you know, 1960s Vietnam, not present day. I said, dad, have you seen a picture of Hanoi lately? Like, do you even know what's there now? Or when I was moving to Dubai, they thought it was Saudi Arabia. So like, they were just like, oh, you won't be able to have any freedoms there, you know, just these kinds of things. Um, but I'm glad I've gone and, and done the things and through just things like things I post on Facebook or things I talk about it also helps kind of chip away at their notions. And I think that's really cool. Just doing that helps them realize like, oh, okay. The UAE is not what I thought it would be. Or, oh, okay. Like she has a real job. <laughs> so she's not just bumming around in, in Southeast Asia, you know? Did so, they not think um, you had a real job? My like first year, my first year in Korea, uh, toward the end of my contract, my dad's like, so are you going to come back and get a real job? And I'm like, dad, I'm teaching. It is a real job. So, right. you know, um, it's just hard because a lot of Americans or a lot of people that, you know, haven't had a chance to work in other places, they see these places as vacations. Like, oh, she's just running off and goofing off. And then, you know, then she'll come back home and get a real job, you know, kind of thing. Um, but clearly I've developed my career more when I was abroad than I was in the States. So it's just been... Uh, fantastic opportunities for me everywhere I've gone. Yeah, I think that's even a generation thing too of like the definition of a real job means you sit at a desk nine to five. Um, and if you're not doing that, or, you know, working in a hospital, whatever, 12 hour shift. But if you're not doing that, I feel like it doesn't feel like a real job. I think I think the hardest thing also from that generation to now is that in the previous generation, you stayed at the same office for 20 years. 
you mm-hmm. retired, you know, with your career. But in our generation, it's more common to work at one place one or two years and then realize you want to go upskill somewhere else or you want to find a better salary or you want to move to another country or another city. And so if I change my job more than once every couple of years, my parents are like, why are you doing that? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there was even um, this misconception too that, or maybe the original thought, if on your resume, you've only been at a place less than two years, two years or less or whatever, it's like, oh, they're not reliable. Why would we want to hire mm-hmm. them? Right, right. But so now, it, is, it is a shift though, because nowadays it's very much, uh, Gen Gen Z, no way. They'll just, they, they won't stay at a place that doesn't appreciate them and more power to them. Because us millennials have been trapped in this whole, oh, we don't want to upset anyone. We just want to do everything right. Maybe we should go, maybe we shouldn't go. And the next gen is like, nope, <laughs> so Whatever. more power like, to them. Yeah. yeah. Well, so you've done a lot of different things. I mean, mostly like in the teaching realm, but when you were little, like, is this what you imagined your life would be like? Like, or did you have like a different aspiration? Well, I think when I was young, you know, kids have all their big dreams, you know, so like being a ballerina, doing this, doing that. I remember for a long time, I wanted to be a writer or an editor because I've always been um, interested in books and writing. And then when I first started university, I was going to school for pharmacy because my oh. dad wanted me to be a pharmacist. He, it's a he stable had been job. A, <laughs> it's a stable job. And he'd worked, he'd worked for Walgreens like over a decade at that point. And he saw that the pharmacists were making good money. And he's like, you need to study that. And I was like, okay, I'll do my best. But when you're in rural Georgia, it's really easy to be in the top of the class. And then suddenly you're at Mercer University and you feel extremely dumb. (laughs) So it's like, you know, so I took that first chemistry class and I'm like, no way, it's not going to happen. And then there became this big rift where I decided to change majors. And my dad was like, well, you're going to have to financially support yourself. So I had to withdraw from the fancy private school and go to a state college. And then I... I went toward teaching, um, not that I, it was a last resort. I had done tutoring in school. I'd always been interested in English and literature, but when my ex was stationed in Korea, I saw that there were teaching opportunities there. So I went and as I was working there, I realized I really do enjoy teaching. And I decided to continue on with my studies online while working simultaneously. So over the next few years, I got my bachelor's and master's online while teaching in Korea and in Texas as well as doing some certification courses and things like that. So it was just one of those things where I really like helping people and I really like creating things to help people. And, you know, I I feel like I had a really good personality to work with people who learn. Um, So it's just been one of those things where, wow, I'm 21 years old and I found something I'm really good at. I feel really lucky because there are people who get their bachelor's, get their master's, and they're like, I have no idea what I'm going to do now because I really don't know what I like to do. Um, so I feel really fortunate that it happened that way, but, um, for a long time, I worked in the classroom. I was working with elementary school students, later high school students. I did some lecturing at uh, St. Mary's in Texas. And then once I left the UAE and came here to Vietnam, I wanted to jump into management. So since then I've been doing educational management, um, at a school, I've been a director at a center. And now I'm doing a lot of admin support with teacher training, materials development, curriculum development. And I feel like I've really found 
my groove here. Like I love being in the classroom, but as I go further, like you said before, we like to try new things. We like to do new things. And I'm finding that I really enjoy being in that support role more so than a managerial role. I feel like this mm-hmm. is where I can make a big difference with other teachers and what they do in the classroom. So that's been fun. Yeah. <laughs> that's been really fun. So has it been challenging or difficult as you've like gone on to different roles, you know, even like going from pharmacy to education realm, do you, did you find like it was like, I don't know if I should do this or were you like, no, I'm just jumping in because I think a lot of people are afraid of trying new things because they don't know what they don't know. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I think for me, a lot of my choices career-wise had come from a place of, I need to do something because if I don't do something, something bad might happen. Mm. And I think the biggest one would be, I got my divorce and my master's degree in like the same month. (laughs) So so I'm finishing up my master's degree. And as you know, in America, education is very expensive. So I have a bunch of student loans waiting for me. I'm freshly divorced. I've lost my benefits insurance, things like that. And I'm like, where do I go from here? And I had been teaching a group of students from Saudi Arabia. And I was like, do I go to the Middle East? And they said, okay, miss, but go to Dubai. Don't go to Saudi. (laughs) And I applied for the job and I had gotten it. And there was a stretch of time between getting the job offer. I got the offer in January, but the job didn't start till August. So I had to figure out what to do in that time. And I ended up couch surfing in New York City while doing a teaching qualification um, through Cambridge. And I got a job right after it with the same company doing a residential English teaching program in New York and, and things like that. And it wasn't comfortable, you know, not having insurance, trying to take over the counter medicine when getting a cold or um, working six days a week on a residential program. But it got me to where I needed to be. And I didn't have a lot of time to think about, well, what if I can't do this? Or what if I fail at it? It's like, you have to do this or else you're not going to have a place to live. (laughs) So it's, it's one of those things where, you know, that time, 2014, 2015 was definitely the, you got to make this. And if you can make it to the other side, it'll be fine. And yeah, I made it to August. I made it to the UAE and I call that my redemption arc. That's when Mm -hmm. I paid off my student debts. That's when I really came through as a teacher. That's when I met Arjun. That's when all these things happened. So, you know, I think and a lot of people probably have gone through this where it's like, wow, you know, how did you make the big decision to do that thing? And I'm like, it didn't feel like a big decision at the time. It felt like this is what I have to do Mm -hmm. in order to to make it or else it's not going to be a good result for me. Um, So... Wow, that feels so courageous. Like, I'm sure at the time you're just like, I'm just trying to survive. Exactly. On this side, it feels super courageous to like go, because I think a lot of people would be like, I'm going home to my parents and like sleeping in their basement or whatever it is, you know, like that's the next step of survival. But I feel like what you did is really bold to, no, I'm just going to keep going and keep doing it. Because that's like, a pretty dire circumstance to be left with like in a different right. country with nothing to yeah. like especially health insurance and like you know, health, yeah. health insurance because like 
I could have gone back home and I could have stayed with my parents and then worked locally. But in the long run, when it comes to finances, when it comes to options, like I needed to take this chance to go abroad. And also there were a lot of things in my personal life where I knew if I stayed in the States or stayed with my family, I would start repeating the cycles Mm -hmm. and I needed to break out of that. So going to a whole new country where I didn't know anyone, nothing, and just starting from scratch, it wasn't easy. Like the first six months were very lonely and very difficult. Mm -hmm. But once I found my way, it, it it all started coming together. So, and it's, it's a lot of people feel it's really difficult or impossible to do. And it is difficult, but I think once people grind their way to the other side, if they're able to do it, then there is a payoff um, by just persevering. If you have the ability to go abroad and do it, not everyone does, but if you do yeah. have the ability, it, sh- it should be taken advantage of. Yeah. I love that concept of being a global citizen, of feeling like the whole world is your home and you can like make a home anywhere. Um, So you have made some pretty big geographic moves. So Mm -hmm. do you ever get tired of moving around or is something that compels you is the different languages or cultures? Yeah, this is something that's been coming up between me and Arjun both. Um, We moved to Vietnam in 2020, which, by the way, moving to a new country in the middle of a pandemic is terrible. Please don't ever do that. Um, (laughs) You can avoid it. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and I don't know if it's a combination of, like I said, I've been away for eight years. I've not been home, so I haven't been home. And then we had COVID. And then I've had all the new challenges of going into management and leadership. And now expecting our first baby. And I'm like, you know what? I'm tired. <laughs> I think yeah. I think I am ready to go back home for a little bit, you know, where things are more familiar, where I can get the things I need, or I can communicate clearly, or it's my own culture to deal with. Like small things here, like people cutting in line or being really loud at 10 o'clock at night, or you know, stuff that's just really normal. And honestly wouldn't have bothered me in my mid-20s now I'm just like I'm tired of it (laughs) and I just want to go back to something familiar for a bit you know um Arjun is from Kerala and living in the UAE he was always able to go home you know it's very easy it's just a three-hour flight Mm -hmm. um and I remember when we came here and then COVID kept us stuck here he went back home after two years and he's like oh you know Eliza I'm finally getting a small idea of what you might feel like because I can't imagine being gone from Kerala for eight years. Like what, what you've done is just, and I'm like, yeah, it was an accident, but you know, it just, it happened that way. And I think for some people you do want that comfort and familiarity, especially as you're transitioning to a different phase of your life. So let's go to Arjun. So the podcast was called Bring, Being Brown and Bold, um, which you visually do not look brown. But when I was thinking about who to invite to speak, I immediately thought of you because you have that global mindset and you married a brown person who's Malayali. Um, so for you, how has it been uh, integrating into Kerala culture? Well, it's been interesting. Um, so some background on Arjun, he's Malayali and he also grew up in Saudi Arabia. So he has a very interesting Gulf Malayali experience. And um, we met in the UAE and I don't know. I've always been the kind of person, like I said, when my dad married my stepmom, he never learned her language. And I always felt like that's kind of a disappointment that my 
grandparents immigrated to the States and they learned English and they assimilated to the culture, you know, but their grandkids don't speak their language. And Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, unfortunately it happens. It's difficult to maintain mother tongues once you're in a new country. So, you know, when I was a kid, I thought, you know, I want to be able to speak to my in-laws. I want to be able to speak to my family or at least, you know, help with the language just because it connects people. Even if you can only speak a little bit, it like endears you to them. Um, so when I met Arjun, I was like, okay, uh, where are you from? You're from Kerala. You speak Malayalam, right? And because, uh, you know, there's so many Malayalis in the UAE. I would heard a few words and a few phrases before then. And yeah, so I started with the language. And then when I went to Kerala, I'd love to say that his parents loved me right away, but no, <laughs> I know. You know we had to, we had to, we had to, we had to get through that. But you know, a lot of that is protective. It's like, how can we make sure our son, you know, continues to have his culture respected? How can the language be preserved? How, is he going to have his foods that he likes? Is he, is our our grandkids going to be able to know about our culture? You know, these kinds of things. So it's coming from a place of love and concern, um, but sometimes it can be expressed in ways that are not very comfortable for everyone. Uh, But thankfully, Arjun did a really great job kind of bearing that and said, you know what, she's the one I want to be with. She's the one I see a future with. It's up to you guys if you want to participate in that. And, you know, since then, things have gotten really good between us. And a lot of it is just that effort. You know, I speak the language. I, you know, like dressing up with them on their special days um, we celebrate Vishu Ornam in the house and send pictures, you know, things like that. And, you know, I think it's important as someone who's in a multicultural relationship to remember that it's good to learn and adjust, but also not to lose yourself. I think some people really lose themselves sometimes trying to acclimate themselves into their partner's culture. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of like disrupts their sense of self. So I think it's really important that you know, the parents, you want the parents to like you, but you also have to like the parents and you also have to, you don't have to like every single thing about the culture. You don't have to praise every single thing. You can have your doubts or your critiques and all, Um, but it's just about having that common understanding. And, you know, Kerala, I mean, India is not a monolith, neither is Kerala. Like there's so many different communities, different rituals, different styles of language, different, you know, things all throughout Kerala. And it's just been really fun exploring it. Um, Before, in 2019, I took a solo trip from Kasaragod, which is the northern border of Kerala, all the way down to Trivandrum, which is right there at the coast on the tip. And I got to see, I think, 11 out of 14 districts. And I just got to meet people and talk to them, try different foods, hear different types of Malayalam. And it was just really neat. And I I really like that because of my connection with Arjun and because of my connection with everyone online, I now have this whole other side to explore and to know more about and to learn from. And I think that for anybody who is wanting to travel or wanting to learn about another place, they'll realize how much more media will be made available to them, how many more experiences will be made available to them just by you know, being open to it and and being respectful of it. That's amazing. I think that is super bold to do solo traveling throughout Kerala. I don't even like, I don't, I think I would solo travel to Europe, 
but I don't think I would do that anywhere in India. Like, how did you have the gumption to do that? It feels very well, I mean, I have to say Kerala in general just feels pretty safe. And also when you know the language a bit, I feel that that really helps you. Mm. Um, and often actually, you know, typical traveling rules for myself is I don't go out after dark and, you know, I don't do transit after dark, things like that. So I was taking the train or I had a driver during the day mm -hmm. and I'd be speaking Malayalam. I'd be, you know, wearing, you know, a kurta and the, the scarf, the shawl. And honestly, more people were just making sure I was okay. They're oh. like, oh, are you by yourself okay are you do you know where you're going do you know what you're doing yes 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 thank you thank you so like it was really nice um that's cool and I, I have to say like I have traveled uh throughout different parts of India and other countries as well and I'd say that Kerala feels quite safe for uh, a solo female traveler I think that if you follow common sense rules and if you have people you check it in with um it's 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 very doable and and and, and quite safe um yeah. so yeah, yeah. You I are inspiring so. me. Like literally, we're trying to go to India. To well, even we had not been to India in twenty years, and so we're like, okay, this coming up winter break in in a year, let's go. But I'm like, hey, mom and dad, my parents are still in New York. I'm like, can you come with us so you can speak Malayalam? I mean, I think that's the biggest thing. You actually know mm -hmm. Malayalam, whereas we are like you know, like there's like very few words that we know. You'll, you'll, you'll just be overcharged on things, but that's about it. <laughs> They'll right. be like, oh, oh, it's the NRIs. We'll add, we'll give them the foreigner tax. Right. <laughs> Which I remember when we did go 20 years ago, we went to the Taj Mahal and it was like six times the price for us to go in. And yeah. I was like, yeah. but when you think about U.S. prices and what we pay, we're oh, like, absolutely. it's still nothing. Yeah, absolutely. Relatively. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, same thing here. Yeah, you, that's so cool that you wanted to learn Malayalam, but how did the story of Elikoti happen where you're actually teaching Malayalam? So that was a accident. <laughs> so uh, when I first started learning Malayalam, I wanted to make a study gram. So like back before there was reels and videos and all these other things, Instagram used to be a photo sharing application. I remember wow. those days. <laughs> <laughs> and so for... Seven days, for seven days, I made one sheet um, per day, and it would be something like the numbers or something like pronouns. And I would make cute little notes and post it. And I was like, okay, after seven days, I opened up a separate Instagram account because I'm like, okay, this one will be focused on Malayalam language. And about a month in, I started getting some attention from Malayalis. They thought it was really cool the things that I was doing. And then um, the reason I was making these materials was because there is not a lot of information out there for learning Malayalam. You have about two or three YouTube videos, you, I'm sorry, YouTube channels. You have a textbook from the 1980s. You have um, a text, some textbooks based in India, but they're written in Malayalam. So if you don't know how to read Malayalam, it's a bit of a hurdle to get through to it. And that's about it. And I was trying to learn and I had found a very linguistic, like it was written for people who know linguistics and grammar. And it was just describing Malayalam grammar. And because mm. I have a language training background, that's not too difficult for me because, you know, I know what subjunctive clauses are and things like this. So what I was trying to do is I was trying to take that and dilute it into something a bit more 
digestible because I thought like the 10 other people out there learning Malayalam might benefit from it <laughs> I would just post it and see and then uh it started picking up more steam and when I started getting more confident with my Malayalam I started to add my voice to the videos explaining things like um ba versus ba and, and stuff like that and then the news article or the newspaper picked up my channel and in the UAE there's a ton of Malayalis so once one news outlet picked up my story everyone in the UAE is talking about it and then it's getting back over to Kerala and then next thing I know in 2018 like <laughs> there's a camera crew at our house like every other day coming to interview me and see what I'm doing and my account exploded from 1,000 to 10,000 followers and just you know a very short time and so Arjun's like, you should start a YouTube channel. And I didn't know anything about content creation. I didn't know how to edit videos. I didn't know how to add subtitles, nothing. So I put out my first video and it did okay. And then I started getting more confident and, you know, taking conversation classes, collaborating with other Instagrammers, you know, kind of finding my footing there. My page exploded. I started doing more videos with my face in it, talking about this and that. And now I got to the point where I find that Instagram is not giving the reach or giving the attention that it used to. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to change my content type just to make the algorithm happy. So I was like, who is my audience? My audience is people who are trying to learn Malayalam. Yes, a lot of Malayalis follow me for the novelty of it. But the people who are benefiting from me are the people who are trying to learn Malayalam. So I started up a Discord server and Discord is kind of like the old internet where everybody has like a screen name and a you know profile picture and everyone can interact anonymously and it's a community base. So it's really nice. And when I was in Discord, another user said, you should start doing online lessons. And so at this point I'm like, okay, well, I'm at an intermediate level of Malayalam. So I'm comfortable teaching basic Malayalam. I'll start making some slides and then I'll just test them out. And depending on how the feedback is, I'll turn those into full length videos to put on YouTube. Mm. And I've been doing those live lessons since May of last year. And I get about 30 to 40 participants every Monday in my wow. class. Um, from New Zealand to India, to Canada, to, to California. Like it's amazing. All these people come and tune in. And what's really wonderful, it's there's people like me who are married to Malayalis. There are um, Malayali uh, heritage speakers living in the U.S. and Canada, getting back in touch with their mother tongue. It's such a nice, diverse group. And it's really helped me stay motivated with my own studies uh, because Instagram was really bumming me out, to be honest. Like something's mm -hmm. changed in the last year or so where we're not getting the reach. We're not getting the feedback. We're not getting that, you know we don't feel like we're accomplishing anything. So right. being able to redirect my efforts into something where I can see tangible results and people benefiting from my content was just a panacea. It was really wonderful to, to see that happen. And so now I'm focusing more on the videos on YouTube and the lessons on Discord. And I'm collecting market research right now to help pitch to publishers for a new and updated comprehensive textbook for beginner wow. Mariela. Yeah, so That's it's amazing, Liza. It's it's great. Very excited about it. That's so cool. Yeah, I think when I started following you, I was like, I don't 
I can understand more than I can speak, which is a common thing if you like heard it growing up. So I would like listen to you and those little nuances and enunciation. I was like, oh, I need to like just speak it and practice. So I would like listen to you and then I would like say it out loud in my house. Um, and yeah, I have always been encouraged by what you're teaching because it, when you grow up with it, you don't think about it, right? Um, right. Because we're not learning grammar or anything. It's just like house talk. So mm -hmm. it was neat to hear. And then I think earlier, I just like do some of my own lesson things and it's always the alphabet. And then it's like, after a while you're like, yeah, never mind. Like, this is not gonna help me do anything. Um, mm -hmm. So I liked, especially when you did your reels of like how to use words and sentences. Um, mm -hmm. So you'll focus on a word. So those were always like super encouraging and helpful for me. Um, but I also think it's so interesting how during the pandemic, I learned there's not one Kerala thing that even in the regions and districts, like there's different things. Like I think, was it you and I that talked about the food Madakasan? Um, and you didn't know what it was and Arjun didn't know what it was. Or, but I think the real way to say it is marikasadhanam, which is folded thing. Oh, marikasadhanam. Well, uh, that's what it is. So, but basically it's kind of like a crepe and oh. but inside is coconut and sugar and cardamom. But okay. it I just found out. So I was just in the New York Times about this recipe and mm -hmm. it came from Goa because the Portuguese went there but then I was like, wait, how did the Portuguese get crepes? And then I found out it's actually a, originally a Greek thing from like thousands of years ago that like traveled. Um, and so it's so fast. So like the way you do language and like culture and history and philosophy, like I do food and mm -hmm. I learned about like how food has traveled everywhere. And it's so fascinating. It is. It absolutely is. Yeah. Yeah, there was a there was a reel I did with my husband's friends. They have an account called Connected Histories where they talk about exactly that, like different things in history, specifically in Asian history, that come together in unexpected ways. And we did a reel about how pepper got introduced to the Romans by ways of Kerala. And I play this Roman character who tries pepper for the first time and goes crazy. And then like, <laughs> I come to Kerala and I'm like, shut up and take my money. You know? <laughs> but it's true. Oh, like, I you know, we that. I need to go that. find that. Oh, it's a fun one. And yeah, like I'm wearing a, I'm wearing like a bedsheet toga and everything. So like, <laughs> but yeah, cause like people forget pepper comes from Kerala and think about right. it. So every, and everybody's table you have black pepper and you don't ever think about, well, where did it come from? And it's like, right. oh, well, it's from this little place on the coast of India that you've probably not heard of, you know? So it's, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And, and language too is really interesting like that. I love to see the connections over time with a uh, language. Like my favorite example is the word for orange and how it became lemon in Malayalam because it started as orange and then it traveled Wait, orange around. Orange is So in Malayalam, nowadays, we have naranya, which is lemon, and then madura naranya, which is sweet lemon ah, or citrus. I did not know this. Yeah, so the Dravidian word was naramkaya, and that went up into Sanskrit, which then went into Persian, This then da, 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 and it becomes naranj, naranha, naranag, and then it comes up and becomes like that. So naranya is... People say, oh, it's Portuguese. And I'm like, technically, but if you go back far enough, it's actually, it's a whole full circle. 
it's a full circle. That's so yeah, it's super fascinating. Um, but like you were saying with learning, the biggest issue we have is that when certain languages take precedence and become a prestige language, you have money and training and funding going into that language. So there are so many cool, fun, interactive ways to learn English now, right? Mm -hmm. The textbooks have pictures and dialogues and everything else. Like in a, in an, even in a children's English book, I I've been teaching primary kids English as a second language for years. The first lesson is not the alphabets. The first lesson is, hi, how are you? Right. right. And then you might learn A-E-I-O-U in this lesson, you know, mm -hmm. and come back to it. And But for some reason, because we haven't updated the methods for other languages, because there hasn't been enough funding or research or, you know, developments, people are learning Malayalam now the same way their parents learned it. And it's not as engaging. It's not as fun. It's not as accessible. So like you said, you're on your fourth alphabet lesson and you're like, okay, but I can't speak anything yet. Right. And, and that's the thing. So a lot of people enjoy my content because they're like, wow, by the end of the lesson, I could say, hi, I'm Eliza. I'm from America. And like, they couldn't say that before. Um, and that's one of my big things about pitching for textbooks is just that there's nothing that follows thematic units. There's nothing that follows, you know, it's, it's, it's not what we're used to as a standard of learning. Like when we've learned Spanish or when we've learned English or German, so that's what I'd love to see in Mariela. And so that's one of the things I'm pushing really hard for. Because even in Kerala itself, Mariela in schools is not in favor. People prefer to send their kids to English medium schools or students will choose to study Hindi instead of Mariela because the exams are easier and they're more focused on their energy on chemistry or physics. Um, and so there's this issue where you have people who speak Malayalam, but they can't write an essay or they can speak it, like you said, home Malayalam, but they can't give a speech right? in Kerala, not just outside, but in Kerala itself. And so that's why I advocate very much for mother tongue education, because it's not just Malayalam that's affected like this. Languages like Kannada are affected like this, Orisha, these other kinds of languages are in danger of being pushed out by either English or Hindi or some other majority language. Right, right. Wow, yeah. I'm so glad that you're there doing this work because having that background and especially working with kids and yeah, it's really awesome to see that this can be moved forward and have the future generations benefiting from all the effort and work that you're doing. So thank you for doing that. Um, as you have like lived in so many different cultures, one of the things that struck me, you know, like we talked about food and language, the other thing is like religion. Like you grew up in what is considered the Bible Belt in the US, but you've lived in Muslim countries, um, experienced Hindu, Buddhist, like all these different religions. But for you personally, has there been like a faith or belief system that has informed any of like your outlook in life? So growing up was really interesting because before my father got remarried, I was living with my grandmother, my dad's mom, and she was Catholic and my grandfather is Baptist. So that's interesting. That um, <laughs> so, uh, but I did go to the Baptist uh, church for most of my childhood. And so like, that was where my first community was, you know, kids going to Sunday school and things and that. And then after my dad remarried and we moved, I had a hard time like finding a home church. And I kind of grappled with faith quite a lot um, in high school. I went through 
one end where I was like going to all the revivals and singing all the songs and feeling like very, you know, into religion, into Christianity. Um, and then I kind of went the other way. And I think when I moved abroad and started meeting other people, I started kind of calibrating my own self. And for me personally, I take, um, I don't really follow any kind of spirituality or religion, uh, but at that same time, I feel that I recognize that religion for some creates goodness and creates meaning in people's lives. So when I see my my Baba, my Serbian grandmother, you know, every day she listens to her Bible songs and she says her prayers in the evening and she always does the good things out of her heart. And I can see, you know, that's really important to her and it, and, and she shines with that. And so that's something positive I associate with Christianity. When I think about Islam, you know, I lived in the UAE for five years. I did read the Quran. I did fast for Ramadan just to see what my students were experiencing. And, you know, I have these other positive examples from that. And then Arjun comes from a Hindu family. He's not practicing, but, you know, just seeing the melting pot that is Hinduism. Like you can't say this Hindu is the same as this Hindu. Everyone has their own beliefs. And I think that's really interesting too, that it's it's a practice that's still very personal. Like it's not prescribed. And I think that's really fascinating. And then here in the Far East, we have um, more of a folk worship or like an ancestor worship. So it's like very important to have a shrine in your house, to give offerings to your um relatives that have passed away, remembering your ancestors, you know, and there's lessons from all of these. And so, you know, I think that it's been good for me to see all these different types of faiths and walks of life. I wouldn't say it's influenced me to fall under one or the other, but it's definitely helped me understand the way people think and understand what's important to them, because Mm -hmm. you'll find the way people practice their faith, it highlights their own personal values, what's important to them. Um, is justice fair for uh, is justice important to them is gaining reward important to them is hard work important to them is remembering your family important to them and that's highlighted there and it's also neat to see the similarities for example how certain structures are built similarly or how certain people will walk in circles in the same direction whether it's one or the other Um, and just you know going to orthodox churches in Serbia and looking at the way they're built and and seeing similarities with certain temples, you know, in India. This it's just really fascinating because we're all human and it's such a connecting thing, this desire to understand the world. And mm-hmm. religion is one of those things that is there to help us understand the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people I felt like this happened also over the pandemic too. Like there was a lot of inward looking into. And I feel like I hear more open talk about spirituality now than like ever in time. Like before it was like, oh, you just don't talk about spirituality because like you might offend people. But I, I've been hearing that people feel more bold about talking about their own personal spirituality, um, you know, whatever it is that they follow or um, believe. So yeah, I just thought it was so cool that you've had this chance to like visually see it. Like I remember when I, I grew up in an Irish Italian Catholic neighborhood being the only Indian. And I read about Hinduism in like school books, but never met anybody. And then I went to college and it was like one of the largest international student populations at a college. And I was like, wait, you're a Hindu. 
I've read about it. Tell me about your experience. Or like, you're Muslim. I'm like, they're like, you're Indian. You don't know. I've never met. And actually it was funny, even like a, a traditional Hindu wedding, still never been to one. I'm like, I don't know what a Sangeet looks like in person. I've never like experienced that. And so, um, yeah, so it's all like super fascinating for me. And I feel like, I hope I get to have more of those experiences down the road. I do like that I've been able to live in different countries and experience it to, again, like I said earlier, chip away at other people's notions because otherwise we don't get exposed to it. Like my mom, when she came to the UAE and she heard the call to prayer for the first time, she's like, oh, does everybody have to stop now and pray? Because she thought people would just stop in the street. And like, this is coming from a place of like, just trying to understand. And I'm like, right. no, mom, that's just letting them know they can go to the mosque now and pray. You know, you don't have to, it's just like an alarm clock. It's, it's letting you know it's time. Um, so, you know, things like that. And after my mom just stayed one week in the UAE, like she had a better understanding. Like she had never been in a place where majority people, like she came to my classroom. She got to meet my students who were all Emirati and, you know, asked them questions. They had a really nice exchange. And, you know, my mom, she you know, was living in a small town in Texas. She would have never had that kind of exchange back home. And so she went back with like a little more information and a little more understanding. And that's what I think is really great about being open in these communities abroad is like, look, you may not agree with someone or you may not want to live the same way as them, but at least now you have a face to it and you say, I've had a conversation with someone and actually what they said was this, and, you know, and it starts challenging those beliefs a little bit, which I think is really important. Yeah. That's really great. I'm glad that she had that experience. Um, we're getting close to time. So a couple of really important questions. One, sure. do you have a curry plant? Curry plant? No. You know, you want to hear the saddest thing? Yeah. The saddest thing here is that in Vietnam, they don't have curry plants here. And if you want to get curry leaves for your curry, oftentimes you have to buy them freeze dried. Oh, that is so sad. <laughs> so we end up putting them in like slightly salted water and like try to let them come back a little bit and then cook with it. It's just not the same as going to the shop and, and buying that fresh, right. <laughs> you know, right. so that's that's really depressing. But, you yeah. know, once we're once we're in the States, I, I might get one of those. Those that would be really nice for for the kitchen. If you when you come to the States and you're like anywhere around me, I will give you a curry plant because they keep propagating. And so I have these baby plants. I'm like, who wants a curry leaf plant? <laughs> nice. So I will nice. definitely get you one. Okay. Nice. Your choice of beverage, chaya, tea, uh, something else, coffee. So in the morning, I like a nice coffee. So I usually have a coffee in the morning. And then in the afternoon, if I have the chance, I do really like chaya. If I'm in India, I usually have three or four cups a day. It's just. Yeah. But they're yeah. small cups. They're not big cups. Yes. 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 Um, so yeah, definitely coffee in the morning, tea in the afternoon, kind of a person, uh, here in Vietnam, they have really strong coffee that they mix with condensed milk and ice. It's really great. And the glass is really small, but the coffee is really strong, super, mm. super strong. Um, but Vietnamese coffee is quite, quite nice. Yeah. And I think they make it in Cambodia like that too. Um, I had mm. a friend who had visited there and heard how, they called it a Cambodian cooler because it was oh. iced coffee. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Based on what you know now, what would you say to 18-year-old Eliza? Things are going to change, but it's going to be okay. 
Mm. We yeah. often, you know, as kids, we often get pushed to be like, what are you going to be when you grow up? What are you going to study? And then by the time you graduate, you have this illusion that you know what the next 10 years of your life is going to be. And then it changes in just six months. Right. <laughs> so right. I think, I think the two things is things will change, but it's going to be okay. Um, and that's, that's what we, cause life is all about changes and how we, how we react to it. And I think it's like embracing it and not being fearful or right. like, okay, I'm fearful, but I'm going to do it anyway. Cause I don't well, know how you erase the fear. Yeah. Sometimes people forget that not making an op. Some people forget that not making a choice is making a choice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so people might like put off a decision or put off doing something, but actually they're already making that choice because they're already starting to have the consequences of not doing anything. So it's good to remember that, you know, if you're putting off this difficult idea or putting off this hard conversation, you're still actively making a choice to not engage. And there are consequences from that. So (laughs) Um, it is good to try to face it. Yes, like you said, feel feel the fear, but but make the choice. Like be, um, don't be passive in your life, especially at that really critical time. That's really good advice. Um, I'm so glad that you're here. Tell us, is there anything else coming up for you that you want to share? Um, yeah, I'm just working on my Discord lessons. That's uh every Monday at 7 p.m. IST. I'm not sure what time that is in the States. It's in the morning. It's early in the morning. Um, And um, like I said, I'm working on some books, hopefully going to find some publishers soon. And in my personal life, I'm about to go to Kerala because I'm giving birth this summer if all goes well. So please keep me in your thoughts. Yeah, that's pretty bold to like, you know, give birth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, kind of happy to do it in Kerala and not have to worry about a ten thousand dollar medical bill. That's that's oh, a whole that's other nice. topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing about your life with us. Absolutely. So, if you are interested in learning Malayalam or just following Eliza, and and especially like, I feel like. What has been lost on Instagram are the reels that were like fun and educational back then and people aren't making it anymore because it's not rewarding anymore. So like definitely go to her Instagram and like go back because she's got like such great stuff in there. Um, And all the links are gonna be on our website. So make sure you head over there. So Liza, I hope you have an awesome evening. And- Had a great time chatting, yes. Yeah, and yeah, when you're in the South, we need to cook together and you need a curry plant. We're going to do all the things. It'll be fun. It'll be fun.